0: Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty Program. 801-331-8113 is the number. Yes. There's an excellent article that I came across. Uh, This was on, I believe it's on, is it on lewrockwell.com? Sorry, I've got to double check this real quick. Yep. It's uh, it's from Chris Martinson, published originally on Peak Prosperity. The title really jumped out at me because I suspect that if you listen to programs like this one, you're probably the kind of person who is... Less interested in just taking a passive approach to life. Well, we'll see where the current carries me and I'll just, you know, watch and see if there's anything interesting. Maybe I'll speak up once in a while. No, you're probably more of the kind of person who is, what can I do? How can I make things better? How can I contribute to improving the world in some meaningful way? And the headline says, save the world by first saving yourself. Now, this can have a couple of different connotations, but I like there's there's a very well-rounded approach here that Chris Martinson uses, whether it's uh, talking about economic crisis, political crisis, spiritual crisis, whatever it may be. He starts with some headlines today. You ready? Ready for this? First headline, negative interest rates are coming and they are downright terrifying. Second headline, Earth's lungs are burning. Amazon rainforest, which contributes 20% of planet's oxygen, is on fire. Next headline, what's in our water? Report, grow, report warns rather of growing invisible crisis of pollution. One more, plants are going extinct up to 350 times faster than the historical norm. Now, Chris Martinson says, from news reports like these, it's understandable to think that our future looks bleak. He says, at this point, we can only ride out the consequences as the systems we depend on collapse and then ebb away, exposing that the structure of our modern way of life is really just an edifice built of sand. Now, that may be true, but not necessarily. He says, I'm here today with some good news. There remains a multitude of options that each of us can and should do to prepare for what lies ahead. And in so doing, we can help avert the worst of it as well. But only if enough of us try, critical mass is key here. Now listen to this next line. Yes, the world is busy collapsing around us. That's true. But collapse is a process, not an event. It can be ameliorated and even reversed depending on the actions we decide to take from here. And there's still time left to change our fate. Not much, mind you, but enough to matter. The good news is that more and more people are heeding the call and taking action. The bad news is that too many still aren't. And the worst news is that many of the entrenched powers of the status quo are working against our future best interests, as they desperately cling to old notions of advantage, wealth, and privilege. Now, Chris Martinson says privately, many of the wealthiest and most powerful political people or politically powerful people are as worried about you and I are as worried as you and I about what is coming. He says, I can tell you from my personal interactions with them that many of the elite are preparing for crisis, building resilient bug out retreats and other safeguards. But he says our model at peak prosperity remains learn, decide Act. It all begins with educating ourselves about the complex systems in play and the forces driving where the developments are headed. From there, we ask that you trust yourself. This is especially important because as social creatures, we are most comfortable moving where the herd is already moving. But by its nature, the herd, in other words, the majority, is often behind the curve. It takes time for privately held but critically important information to become acknowledged and accepted by the herd which is why so many of the masses become unsuspecting collateral damage when crisis hits. Since they aren't privy to the early warnings, which are usually only noticed and appreciated by a proactive minority, they're caught by surprise. And for many, even if they're made aware of privately held information, they still won't depart from the false comfort of the herd. This explains the mysterious bystander phenomenon, where people fail to come to the aid of a victim in distress if they don't see other people reacting too. We all have the wired tendency to wait until others are moving before we move too. Take a crowded theater where fire breaks out and smoke starts to billow into the space. A few people first take notice and begin to move to the exits, then a few more, but at some point the idea of a fire becomes common knowledge, and then everybody believes... Everyone else agrees the theater is on fire. That's when bedlam and chaos break out. Now, the author goes on to say it's really important to understand the importance and power of this tipping point. When previously privately held ideas suddenly become common knowledge, because that's the moment where the status quo quickly morphs into something new, usually catching the herd completely flat footed. As Chris Martinson says, when when he launched the uh, crash course video series back in 2008, he implored people to trust themselves on a whole host of economic and financial indicators that were flashing red. We're trained to trust authorities who sometimes don't have our best interests in mind and who sometimes are even more clueless than average and really have no good answers or maybe they just have harmful ones. Chris Masterson says, I wanted folks to look at the data and decide for themselves whether the official narrative of there is nothing to worry about truly made sense. By the way, just as a quick aside, have you heard those words within the last week or so pertaining to, uh, you know, the economic stability of, of this great nation? Just asking. Chris Masterson says just a few weeks after, after publishing the final chapter of the series, the great financial crisis erupted and oil shot above $100 a barrel for the next several years. And the rest, as they say, is history. Here's what he wrote in 2009. He said the key to navigating during moments when the dominant story is wrong is to consciously block out the programming That's constantly reinforcing the status quo and to examine each assertion made by authorities and by advertising and by journalists and any and all experts, myself included, as though it were possibly a live hand grenade. Now, while you may ultimately end up agreeing with the assertion or claim your first instinct should be one of suspicion. Often my first clue that I need to do more research into a particular assertion is simply a gut feeling that something is not right here even when I cannot quite articulate why, maybe have almost zero hard data on the matter. I've learned to trust my instincts for when a story just doesn't add up. This principle can be applied to the Bernie Madoff swindle. Many investors have recently described that they had suspicions and concerns over the years about the steadiness of Bernie's investment returns, yet they kept their money with him. If they had simply trusted themselves and decided to move their money to an institution where they didn't have these gut-level concerns, well, they'd be in infinitely better shape now. The benefits of trusting yourself and applying private knowledge can be huge. The Bernie Madoff case illustrates this perfectly. Lots of people had their private concerns, but since nobody else seemed to notice or care, they did nothing. It was only once it all became common knowledge— that a whole Madoff swindle broke into a shocking, wealth-destroying scandal. Now, to avoid this fate, a key success strategy we can practice is to trust ourselves, trust that our private knowledge is sufficient, and be confident that eventually the common knowledge crowd will catch up to us. So what matters most is that we act in advance of crisis, especially when those around us aren't. He says, what I most want you to do is act on what you know because it's time because you already know just how screwed up the systems are because your trust in the collective political and corporate leadership to act responsibly has eroded because you just know it in your gut. Now it takes effort. He says, once the ball gets rolling and more of the above concerns move from private to common knowledge, you should expect the pace of developments to speed up quickly. It's like how Hemingway answered the question, how did you go bankrupt? gradually and then suddenly. Now we're going to come back to this in a few moments. We've got a break here in about a minute. I don't have time to go into some of the things, but he's going to ask how many of the things that I'm going to share with you on the other side of the break are holding you, are you holding right now as private knowledge? And I think some of these will be familiar to you. So we'll get to that in, in just a few moments with the understanding that they're going to become common knowledge at some point. I know one of the things that uh, that I've been touching on off and on throughout this year is what is going to happen to food prices when the lack of crops due to flooding in the Midwest starts to impact the food supply, what's available to us. Right now there aren't that very, there aren't that many people who are thinking about it. It's mostly private knowledge. There are a few folks who have been paying attention. But for the most part, people are like, yeah, whatever. But when that becomes common knowledge, you're going to see people start to get a little bit freaky. This involves food. When the cost of feeding their families gets to where it's starting to be painful, yeah, things, things could get interesting, to put it mildly. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. All right. So I'm sharing this uh, amazing article about uh, save the world first by saving yourself. This is published on LewRockwell.com. It's by Chris Martinson, and it's uh, it's originally published on Peak Prosperity. He makes a very careful, uh, uh, a very uh, clear delineation here between what is private knowledge and what becomes common knowledge. And the key is to act on your private knowledge before it becomes common knowledge. He uses a great analogy of like uh, smoke in a theater, or uh, you know the the fire alarm going off while in the theater. Most people sit there, not really wanting to believe that something is wrong, until other people start to move. And once other people are moving, okay, well then maybe we should move too. But there comes a tipping point where suddenly everybody is moving, and that's when it gets really, really dangerous. I'm going to bring back a bad memory here. Do you remember the uh, fire in uh, New Hampshire? I forget the name of the nightclub. Great White was the band that was playing. Had some pyrotechnics as part of their show. And uh, I will never forget seeing the the video footage. Someone on their cell phone filmed as they were sitting in there. And you see the flash pots go off and the shower of sparks. And somebody sees the sparks start to catch insulation on the ceiling on fire. And the person with the camera wisely was like, whoa, whoa, that's not good. And immediately got up and starts moving towards the door. And the music keeps playing. You know, they're moving towards the door and and people are like, what? What is it? What is it? And they, and they get to the door. And just as they get to the door, that's when the panic starts. That's when suddenly people realize, holy cow, this really is a problem. And fortunately, they got outside, but it was it was horrifying how quickly the door was jammed up with people trying to get out. And I forget how many people died. I want to say it was, it was a hundred people lost their lives simply because number one, they couldn't believe something bad was happening. And by the time they realized it was happening and realized, Oh, we should probably act on this. Everybody had the same idea and jammed themselves in the in the exits, trying to get out. I don't share that with you to bum you out, but just to point out that, uh, yeah, the time to move is is quickly. So here's the question that uh, Chris uh, Martinson asks about how many of these things are you holding right now as private knowledge? In other words, these are things you understand or you know that aren't yet common knowledge. The U.S. justice system is corrupt and favors the wealthy. U.S. financial markets are rigged and unfair. Our food system is by and large selling us toxic junk. Chemicals such as neonicotinoids are not fully tested before their deployment and are more harmful to our ecosystems than publicly admitted. I have no clue what that even is. Pharmaceutical companies often hide test results from the public that would reveal their drugs are less effective than advertised and have far riskier side effects. We should be a hell of a lot more concerned about the massive die-offs in animal, insect, and marine life. Weather patterns are becoming more extreme at a faster rate. Drought, heat, fires, hurricanes, and floods are happening with greater frequency and intensity than experienced in the past century. The U.S. political and military systems are not concerned about human rights or democracy. Instead, the U.S. operates more as a modern version of the British Empire, whose redcoats mainly protected trade and other mercantile interests. Now, here the author says, I'll wager that few, if any, of those feel untrue to you. And he says, I think part of the reason that such damaging revelations still remain as private knowledge is because moving them into common knowledge requires the destruction of closely held belief systems. It takes time, mental effort, and emotional strain to admit to ourselves that those in charge of society may not actually have our interests at heart. Again, nature has provided strong protections to maintaining existing belief systems. Maybe it's just too hard or too expensive to alter them. Whatever the reason, the more central the belief system, the more tightly we cling to it. Some of the most tightly held beliefs include faith in authority, a belief in the fundamental goodness of people, believing that your country is both moral and good, bedrock knowledge that the justice system is blind and fair, and a belief that nature will always bounce back. He says, it's far easier to live day-to-day walking around believing the above are true. A thousand times easier than giving them up. To lose faith in these beliefs means squinting at every package label of food, wondering what hidden toxins might be lurking within. It means questioning every news release. Take the recent coverage of the Epstein, quote, suicide, in quotes, because it's been reported that after allegedly leaning forward onto paper-thin bedding to strangle himself multiple bones in his neck were broken, among which was the hyoid. Yeah, right. Got it. Um, wait, back up. Multiple bones? It means Googling your medical systems because you don't fully trust in the treatment plan and prescriptions your health insurer is willing to cover. He says, I get it. All this work is definitely not as easy, easy as trusting in the basic systems that govern and support our lives. But he says the biggest fallacy of them all, the biggest belief system that is increasingly under attack in both private and common knowledge is the idea that perpetual exponential economic growth is good, let alone possible. He says those like us at at peak prosperity are unsettled with our private understanding that it isn't. The public is catching on, albeit very slowly, while the keepers of the system remain busy deflecting attention and delaying the inevitable. But it won't happen. Eventually the reality catches up private knowledge becomes common knowledge and then everything changes very suddenly all of which brings me to my conclusions think for yourself make up your own mind be secure in your ability to think for yourself and act now before things get materially worse and your options become much more limited which leads to my motto he says which is I'd rather be a year early than a day late. He says, you already know that it's time to prepare for whatever's coming. None of us knows exactly how and when it will manifest, but our spidey senses are tingling loudly at this point. We see the building tension in the mass yellow vest restiveness across France, the millions of protesters in Hong Kong. It's in the quickening breakdown of political goodwill between nations. It's in the trade disputes and in every tweet and headline desperately floated out there to divert the public's attention from the problems we face. It's in the sudden appearance of $16.5 trillion of negative yielding debt and the many companies that make no profit, but apparently are worth tens of billions of dollars each, all of which signals it's time. It's time to act before the system falls apart. Change is happening. Abrupt departures from the script are already occurring, which is why he says I implore you to see to your own provisions now and to take the necessary steps to align your personal actions with your private knowledge. Step one, make sure your wealth is safely managed by prudent professionals or is entirely out of the markets. Step two, have at least three months in physical cash on hand out of the banking system for immediate access during an unexpected emergency. Beyond that... Consider holding any remaining cash you have in the system inside the U.S. government's Treasury Direct program, where it will earn a higher return with greater safety versus being in a bank. Have a crisis stash of physical gold or silver stored somewhere safe where you can get to it yourself, possibly quickly. Be prepared. Be sure to have all the emergency basics safely stored and readily accessible. Food, water, personal protection, medical supplies, etc. This is smart preparation against any kind of unexpected crisis, be it natural disaster, painful economic downturn, social unrest, or something even worse. And number five, be positioned to help those less prepared than you. Now, this isn't intended to put you into a state of fear or panic, but wouldn't you agree that it's time to really evaluate what you hold as private knowledge that could become public knowledge very soon? Maybe shore up your life in those areas before it becomes public knowledge. Incredible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, 801 331 8113. Hey, quick reminder for you as we uh, move forward here. Uh, it's going to be best of Joe Carey today, but uh, Larry Reed will be on the air this afternoon for the Reed Hour. Larry is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. What a great voice for liberty and, and what a consistent voice uh, to, to share the, the principles and the ideals of liberty and, and its uh, inseparable connection with character. And what a privilege to have him as uh, one of the, the pillars here on the Loving Liberty radio network. Of course, uh, coming up from 2 until 5, it is my friend Kate Daly. See, we've also got uh, Beth Ann and uh, C.L. Bryant each doing their part to uh, to use common sense in, in discussing the events of our day. And of course, it's uh, Liberty Roundtable with Sam Bushman coming your way from 5 until 7. Just a few things straight ahead. Just want to do one quick reference again to the article, which I will post in the show notes for the podcast today. Uh, This is the article from um, Chris Martinson. Save the world by first saving yourself. I think there's a lot of good advice here. And I think the best of all is is just simply, if you want to save the world, you've got to save yourself. But you have to trust yourself to act on your own. You you may be the first among your friends or your neighbors. You might be one of the final early movers within your community who shakes the herd out of its complacency to bolt for the exit. But start with yourself. By the way, I don't know if you have any uh, any concerns about... Uh, What's what's happening with uh, the economy or what uh, potentially is shaping up for the economy? I'm very suspicious, just based on the events of 2008, that, uh, oh yes, this kind of uh, economic growth is to be expected and why it's our entitlement. We are, you know, supposed to just have never-ending, always upwardly mobile prosperity. But you can't do that in a debt-based economy. And so when I hear about the inverted yield curve and how, you know what, that's a pretty good indicator that there are recessions around the corner, you know, that gets my attention. But you know what gets my attention even more is when you have the president and people all the way on down through the U.S. government saying, "Ah, there's no danger of a recession. Now, mind you, I'm not wishing for one. But I understand that these corrections have to happen from time to time. And the longer we go between corrections, usually the more violent or the more upheaval is caused by the, uh, the correction when it does take place. So are there any benefits to when a recession comes? Here's the silver lining. And uh, Charles Hugh Smith, writing on of com, has a great little column here about the benefits of a profoundly shattering recession. So I'm not saying this with the idea that, hey, I know for a fact it's going to happen. I know the potential is there. But if it does happen, this is the silver lining that you can look to. First thing he asks is, does anyone really think the everything bubble can just keep inflating forever? And next he says, what do I mean by a profoundly shattering recession? He says, I mean a systemic crushing recession that can't be reversed through central bank magic, a recession that only deepens with time. The last real recession was roughly two generations ago, 1981. Younger generations have no experience of a profound recession, and perhaps older folks have forgotten the shock, angst, and bitterness. A profoundly shattering recession leaves tremendous damage and pain in its wake. Millions of people who reckoned their position was secure get laid off. Businesses that look solid melt into air. Large corporations flip from hiring thousands to firing thousands, and everyone on the edge of insolvency gets a hard push over the cliff. Profoundly shattering recessions feed on themselves in a self-reinforcing dynamic. So the first domino could be a supply shock or a decline in demand due to credit exhaustion. Since businesses have cut everything to the bone in the past decade, there are no buffers left. Layoffs begin immediately, and those layoffs further reduce demand as households have to tighten their belts to survive. Even those who escape the first round of layoffs find bonuses and overtime have been slashed. Since the problem isn't high interest rates, central banks reducing rates or pushing them into negative negative territory only reveals their impotence. If negative interest rates boosted the real economy, Europe and Japan would be experiencing rapid expansion instead of stagnation. Layoffs, the failure of central banks, and soaring fiscal deficits trigger a drop in consumer and investor sentiment, which feeds back into declining sales and profits, which then trigger more layoffs as businesses must cut expenses as revenues crater. Clearly, there there is no benefit to households or enterprises to this self-reinforcing recession. The benefits are structural. Financialization, the parasite that's eaten our economy from the inside, will collapse along with the mountains of debt that fueled it. Zombie corporations and local governments that have been insolvent in all but name will finally go bankrupt, clearing the system of their dead weight. Economies supporting zombie entities are sacrificing their capital to keep insiders afloat, which leaves less capital to invest in increasing productivity, which is the only way to increase broad-based wealth. The everything bubble will finally pop, stripping the system of phantom speculative wealth and fictitious capital. Price discovery will once again be possible, as all the central bank-inflated bubbles will deflate and real demand and supply will set the price of assets. Now, once central banks have been revealed as powerless, the quasi-religious belief in their omnipotence will dissipate, and people will finally start dealing with gilded-age excesses of the past 20 years. Common-sense limits on financial predation and trickery will gather support, and tricks like corporate buybacks will be outlawed or restricted. If capital can't earn a low-risk return, then it can't flow to productive uses. Once a central bank manipulation fails... Capital might demand a yield and in doing so it will start a beneficial cycle in which speculation will no longer be enabled and rewarded by zero interest rates or negative rates. Only those enterprises and households with productive uses for borrowed capital will reckon the interest costs are worth the risk of taking on debt. That bloated parasitic banking sector will it will implode, and what's left of it will return to its proper role a thin, regulated sector of the economy stripped of political power. Now remember, this is the bright side of a truly crippling recession. All the cartels and monopolies that depend on debt will implode banking, higher education, ultimately national defense and sick care, which depend on federal borrowing to reduce their predator to fund rather their predatory uh, pricing. The U S economy needs a reset. If it's to lift all boats And the sooner that reset occurs, the sooner we can dispense with all the cronyist intervention, the self-serving manipulation and exploitive distortion that's turned our economy and society into a speculative casino that only favors a few insiders and those who know how to rig the game to their benefit. A profoundly shattering recession, he says, requires patience, fortitude. And an awareness that the sacrifices demanded will be worth the pain if we rid our society of at least the top layer of financial and political parasites and predators that have corrupted our economy, our governance, and our society. Does anyone really think the everything bubble can just keep inflating forever? Surely nobody's that deluded. The global economy is destabilizing and we're about to discover there is no way to halt a profoundly shattering recession. We have a once in 80 years opportunity to right the ship before it sinks into oblivion. Again, this is uh, Charles Hugh Smith writing on of twominds.com. Now, I, I have to reiterate, my intent here is not to make you fearful, angry or otherwise, you know, manipulate your emotions. But just simply to put it out there, what if? What if what he's saying is true? What if there is a profoundly shattering recession coming our way? Every single one of us has steps that we could take to mitigate the possibility of being uh, horribly inconvenienced, if not crushed, by such a recession. So what are you doing? I can't give you a quick one size fits all answer because I don't think it's one size fits all. We're all in different places. We all have different, uh, you know, different strengths and different weaknesses, different vulnerabilities. I can tell you this, the people who have eliminated as much debt as possible from their lives are likely to have the greatest amount of latitude in their options. Should a shattering recession come. But I think it's easier for most people just to kind of keep chugging along, like, ah, well, you know, everybody thinks the bad that the you know the sky's gonna fall and something bad's gonna happen, but but it never does until it does. Look, I'll never forget paying for a tank of gas at the convenience store. And the girl behind the counter telling me, you wouldn't believe the number of professionals, doctors, and and attorneys I've had in here looking for part time work. That was during the last downturn. What if the next one's worse? Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. We are in the home stretch on this Tuesday. Ah, I've got t- I've got so many different uh, different topics that I could go to. Just trying to figure out which one is best. There's a great article here on how self-esteem is not the virtue that we think it is. But I think I want to share one here. This is from the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, the author is Tim Hasayo. I hope I'm saying his name right. Anyway, it's called Gun Rights Don't Depend on Statistics. And since you're hearing a lot of debate about uh, the right to keep and bear arms, you're probably seeing a few statistics pop up in the course of these debates. As Tim Hisayo says, uh, it's nice when statistics are on your side. When it comes to guns, though, he says, I think the best statistical evidence shows that guns are, in fact, a force for good. But what if that wasn't the case? What if it turned out that the statistics showed that permissive gun ownership actually does more harm than good? He says nothing of significance would follow because as valuable as they are. Statistics aren't all that matters, nor are they even the most important thing we should take into account when making public policy decisions, especially decisions that involve natural rights. See, there are some problems with the utilitarian model. He says when statistics are invoked in a public policy discussion, it's almost always done as part of a cost-benefit analysis. This involves taking a given policy and weighing its positives and negatives. If there are more positives than negatives, then it's implied that adopting the policy is a good idea. If there are more negatives than positives, then it's implied that adopting the policy is a bad idea. Seems simple enough, right? Right. Well, many think that all of our decisions about the policies we adopt should follow this model. The technical term for this way of thinking is utilitarianism. Now, the virtue of utilitarianism is that it's a pretty easy, natural, and straightforward way of making decisions. While it does sometimes require familiarity with the relevant data and research methods, which means we have to frequently trust the experts, the underlying principle is intuitive. It's about the numbers. Now, as intuitive as it may sound, there are many things that just can't be reduced to just a numbers game. For example, suppose that enslaving an innocent minority of the population into forced labor would yield more good effects than bad effects. Well, since the numbers check out, would that make involuntary slavery justifiable in this situation? Of course not. The innocent minority's right to autonomy is more important than any gain in social utility. Here's another famous example. Suppose the only way to save five dying people would be for a transplant surgeon to kill an innocent person and distribute his organs among the five. Assuming that the numbers would kneel would yield a net positive result, would it be justifiable for him to do that? Again, absolutely not. The innocent person's right to life resists the appeal to the greater good. So just because something makes sense from a numbers perspective does not mean that it is morally permissible. Now, he says, whenever I bring up these examples in the classroom, one response I inevitably get is that these scenarios are dumb because they never would happen. Well, maybe they won't, but that misses the point completely. What these examples show is that there are certain things that are more important than cost benefit analyses. The extreme nature of these scenarios just serves to make them appear more evident. So he asks, where am I going with all this? Well, the takeaway from these examples is that natural rights are not things that depend on the balance of social utility, nor can they be overridden simply because there's a greater good at stake. To see why, ask yourself this question. Why do you have the right to life? Is it because you can contribute to society? No. Your right to life isn't dependent on your ability to perform to a certain level or produce social utility. You don't work to earn the right to life, nor is it given to you based on merit. Rather, it is a natural right that everyone has simply by virtue of having a human nature. Now, morality is fundamentally about living well. But that's impossible if the interest of the individual can be smothered by the interest of others. So for that reason, the rights exist, rights exist as shields that protect the goods we need in order to flourish as we should. They impose obligations on others to respect them. By their very nature, rights are bulwarks against utility. So he says, let's pivot back to the right to life. The right to life is our most fundamental right. It's the right on which all other rights depend. Rights to bodily autonomy, free speech, and other goods are meaningless if the person attached to these rights is dead. Maybe some rights can yield sufficient to sufficiently weighty concerns, but the right to life does not seem to be one of those rights. And he says, we also saw earlier that the right to life isn't dependent on whether respe- respecting your life would yield the best set of consequences. It is absolute and unrelenting, even if it would be more beneficial to violate it. Wow. It would be wrong for a surgeon to override your right to life in order to harvest your organs to save five people. Even if in doing so, he produces a more beneficial outcome overall. It would be wrong for me to deliberately push an innocent man in front of a speeding train. Even if that man's death resulted in 10 lives being saved. So the right to life has fundamental weight that cannot be overridden or defeated By any other right or social utility but the same must also be true of the right of self-defense since the goal of self-defense is to protect life the right of self-defense must extend to all cases that the right to life extends to hence the right to self-defense or the right of self-defense must have equivalent strength and scope to the right to life indeed since the right of self-defense is just part of the right to life it must share its strength Now, are there any other related rights that also share in the strength of the right to life? Yes. Note that the right of self-defense is the right to forcefully repel a threat against oneself. But I cannot use force to repel an attack without using some means of force, whether it be a stick, a baseball bat, or even just my arms and legs. Exercising self-defense requires that I do something. But in order to do something, I must first possess some means of doing so. So if I possess the right of self-defense, I must also possess the right to some means of self-defense. This is just another way of saying that I must possess the right to bear arms as a necessary component of the right of self-defense. Since the right to life includes the right to self-defense, that includes the, which includes the right to bear arms, the right to life must include the right to bear arms. Hence, he says the right to bear arms is ultimately a natural extension of the right to life. The rights to life, self-defense, and arms are a package deal. If you have one, you have all of them. If you lack one, you lack all of them. They all possess equal strength and scope. The connection to gun ownership is obvious, or at least it should be. Guns are accessible, effective, and proportionate means of self-defense. The right to own a gun is therefore simply an extension of the right to life. Now, while the right to own a gun is not itself a natural right, after all, guns are things that we invented. Its role in safeguarding our most fundamental natural right means that it shares in its strength and scope. Since the right to life is utility resistant, so is the right to own a gun. Therein lies the basis for gun ownership. It is about the right of each individual to have a reasonable means of fending off a deadly threat, whether it be against a criminal or rogue government. Whatever effects guns have on average safety or average crime rates, whether positive or negative, is secondary. Even if permissive gun ownership increased average crime, it would not weaken the right one bit. Now, he says, again, I think the best statistical evidence shows that guns are, in fact, a force for good. Moreover... He says there is a sense in which statistics do play an important part in arguing for gun rights. There's also admittedly a degree of simplicity or convenience in just trotting out the numbers versus an extended discourse on the nature of rights. All that being said, the ultimate foundation for gun rights is not, has never been, and cannot ever be statistics. We can use statistics to strengthen our case for gun rights, but they cannot be the pillar on which it all rests. I think that's one of the better explanations I've encountered, and I've been paying attention for some time, but I like this. I'm going to include this article in the show notes, so you can check out the show notes when you uh, look up the podcast, anchor.fm, go to Loving Liberty Radio Network, and there you will find hour two of Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde and this article from Tim Right Gun Rights Don't Depend on Statistics. I have a feeling that we are approaching a time where we're going to have to make a stand. We're going to have to to really assert and claim this right. Just as an aside, Ammon Bundy mentioned the other day he's going to go try to purchase a firearm. He's not been convicted of anything that would disqualify him. But he's on a terrorist watch list when it comes to flying. Kind of like secret, double secret probation or something. I'm curious to see how his uh, efforts go. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.